This is Annika in Columbia and Maria in Happy Valley. And welcome to the second season of the City of Subdued podcast, Bad Town. So Maria, before we dive into this week's episode of Bad Town, what kind of hot goss do you have? You know, honestly, uh, kind of feels like a slow news week and, you know, compounded with the fact that we're actually recording a little bit earlier than we usually do this week. Uh, so I feel like there's not much exciting to talk about. Um, just like busy bees over here working our little butts off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Between work and school, there's really barely any time left in the day. But if you, dear listener, happen to have time left in your day, we have another bonus episode up on our Patreon. Yes. It's a rapid round of this or that. You can find it on patreon.com slash city of subdued podcast. We had so much fun recording it and we hope that you'll have fun listening. Yes, we, we had so much fun. So Maria, what are we learning about this week? This week, we are learning about the butcher that got butchered and everything that comes with that. And I will say, I think for the first time ever, I'm going to put an official content warning on this episode for grotesque descriptions of violence dead to a human body. Just need to put Uh, that out there. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, That's coming right up on this week's episode of Bad Town. It's Maria, and welcome to Bad Town, where we discuss the darkest and baddest parts of Bellingham and Whatcom County history. We are joined today by Colby and Ren from the Good Time Girls. So what story are you telling me about today? Today, we're going to tell you guys a little bit about what we call the story of the butchered butcher. (laughs) And it's a story about a man who was found brutally murdered in downtown Bellingham and all the circumstances around his murder um, may or may not be unsolved. Can I jump in for one second? Yeah. <laughs> I just, I would just occur to me that maybe it would be good to mention that this story is like one of our oldest stories that we've been telling on our Gore and Lore tours, I think since Sarah and Marissa first started the tours back in, I think they first did Gore and Lore in 2011. And it's it's just such a fabulous story. And also, the story is covered in pretty good detail in a book called Murder in the Fourth Corner by Todd Warger, who is a museum employee here in Bellingham, who writes some really fun true crime books. If you're really into what we're telling you, a lot of these stories and others can be found there. And this is also one of our favorites because it's attached to some of our favorite drinking establishments. Ren, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, this is one of my favorite stories to tell. It's fun to do it a podcast way because we can kind of elaborate a little bit. So if we want to dive in, I guess we can we can get going. Do it. All right. So on April 12th, 1905, Frederick Dames is found murdered in his butcher shop on State Street. The murder occurred sometime between 10 p.m. on April 11th and 8.15 in the morning. 
And the shop that we're talking about here is was called the Palace Meat Market at the time on Elk Street, which is actually now renamed State Street, in a little drinking establishment, which we now refer to as the Red Light Bar. Some of you all might be familiar with that drinking establishment. We always love to plug it. And they have some really wonderful um, historic photographs of, of the butcher shops. It also included the former Green Frog slash Firefly, which sadly closed recently. But both of those establishments were connected as one at different points in history. The Green Frog slash Firefly building was an addition to the original butcher shop. Just a little history. That's what we're here for. <laughs> so Frederick Dames, he's found murdered. He's not found murdered in the actual shop. He's found in his sleeping shack, which was located behind the shop. And that's kind of, that would have been kind of in the alley back there. You know, I'm sure most of you have drank on the, on the Green Frog um, uh, patio up there. So you'd be looking down on old Dames's sleeping shack. And the Great Northern Rail tr Railway tracks kind of ran down the alley behind that. So kind of a real romantic spot <laughs> to live out your days. So Dames is found on the morning of April 12th. And he is actually sadly um, found by his 16-year-old delivery boy. God. Yeah, I cannot even imagine. So the scenes of the murder showed signs of a great struggle. Everything in the shack was smashed. Dames' skull was actually crushed by multiple blows and cleaved by a hatchet. Then... The coroner's report also tells us that the murderer pinned Dames to the ground using a screwdriver, which he bludgeoned into the floor with the, the blunt end of an axe, through Dames's eye socket. Ugh, so gross. Yeah, so somebody had it out for Dames. <laughs> yeah, that's a real gnarly one, Jesus. Yeah, it's so brutal. That's kind of part of the mystery of the story, that level of brutality. Yeah, and it's not just your typical, um, you know, Wild West shootout kind of thing. This is, a, this is a pretty intense kind of murderer, axe murderer, literally. So we have this really wonderful um, write-up from the Seattle Sunday Times. And I tell all my tour goers, if you, if you haven't had the opportunity to read like an early 1900s, late 1800s newspaper, you really should get your hands on one because everything is poetry in these things. If only newspapers were written like this today, I'd read them way more. I know. They're so romantic and flowery. And so it's like tax write-ups. It's like stories about puppies, but it's also like descriptions of grisly murders. <laughs> so what we have for you today is a write-up from the Seattle Sunday Times, which was published um, years later. We'll get to that later, but this gives a really good description of the crime scene and so we like to read it. It's, it's you know, why fix what isn't broken? Because this does, does the job. So here we go. Evidently, the murderer had pushed his way quietly through the door, stepped softly to the head of the bed, turned on the light which hung near, and struck the first blow while the aged man slept. But the aim was not accurate, and before his assailant knew it, the butcher was up and grappling with his foe. Again and again, the hand axe descended on the skull of the doomed man, sometimes merely slitting the scalp and again cutting an ugly wound. The butcher was not a man to cry out, and this probably accounts for the failure of the policeman on the beat to hear a noise. 
Persons in the neighborhood did hear scuffling, but thought little of it. Finally, the terrible onslaught of the assailant was too much for the victim and he sank to the floor. There on his knees, he kept up the battle until a terrible blow just back of the right ear set him down. It was then that the matches were lighted and the murderer might see his work was well done. Listening for a moment, the sound of a passerby or of persons approaching who might have heard the commotion, the blood-stained man opened the door, passed out into the night, and was gone without leaving a single mark to aid the officers in their search. Dun-dun-dun. <laughs> I like how they account for the failure of the policeman to hear a noise. <laughs> like, just, you know, like, we were totally doing our job. <laughs> but he probably he was just really brave, and he didn't yell, which is probably totally not true. This poor guy. Like, yeah. Oh, and then, yeah, I guess I forgot to mention that the top of his skull was fully chopped off as well in the struggle. <laughs> yeah, you got to mention that. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. Do we know anything about the victim, the the poor butcher? Yeah, um, he was kind of a mystery man in terms of, you know, the citizens of Bellingham and what they knew about him at the time. But his name was Frederick Dames or Doms. I'm not really sure the correct pronunciation, but we call him Dames. He was born in Germany about 1843 and came to New York with his parents and siblings in the 1850s. They settled in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. His father, also named Fred, was also a butcher. But Fred Jr. apparently had a bit of a wandering spirit, and uh, he left home about 1861, and he joined the 16th Iowa Infantry during the Civil War, during which time he lost a middle finger on his left hand at the Battle of Shiloh in Tennessee, and also that his regiment saw several months as prisoners in Andersonville. So a little trauma probably there from that experience. After the war, he tried uh, prospecting. He went west and, you know, was doing the silver and gold mining in Nevada and California, kind of just moving around a lot before falling back on his old, you know, family uh, learned skill of being a butcher. He started running meat markets in different locations. He lived in Portland before coming to Bellingham. The scene of the crime showed that he clearly put up a fight. He was five foot nine. He wasn't a small guy for the times. His fists were bruised and cut up from fighting off his assailants. And in terms of looking for a motive, he was really known to like be regular. He was good businessman. He deposited his daily receipts every day in the bank. He didn't keep a lot of money on him. Uh, there was no money found at the scene, though. So, you know, maybe there was some small amount of pocket change that could have been pilfered. The place did appear to be ransacked. What were they looking for? Question marks. There was not a sign of forced entry. So that led people to wonder, did he know his assailants? Did he let them in? Or did he just forget to lock his door? There were no witnesses, no neighbors heard anything, really few clues other than the bloody hatchet and screwdriver that was impaled through his head. Later, they did find a stained bloody overcoat in the bay, I believe. There's different stories that say it was in the bay or in a shack near the bay. And yeah, but like we said earlier, the brutality of this crime really suggests something along the lines of like revenge slaying or like crazy bloodlust. Uh, so it didn't really seem like a standard robbery. So people wondered about Dames and why, you know, he had started businesses and left places and kind of moved around a lot. He was a loner. He didn't 
have family. He did have family. He just hadn't talked to them in a lot of years, and he didn't have a wife or children. He was known to have a bit of a temper, and he was known to sometimes joke about quote-unquote enemies who might be after him, but we don't have any real clue as to who these enemies were or why they might have been after him. So after, you know, the crime was discovered, uh, Dames had a burial at Bayview Cemetery. His grave is there. It is a um, military marker issued for his service in the Civil War. And eventually his sister, his only heir, and his aged mother were located in Wisconsin. So... So we know all about the victim, but what I'm guessing our listeners are really interested in are the suspects. Who are like the people that were on high alert for, for this crime? Well, we had a number of suspects actually um, in the beginning. Um, and that starts with these fools <laughs> and their last names are Davis and Donnelly, Charles Davis and William Donnelly. And right after the murders, Colby mentioned there was a um, there was a bloody shirt found, and and yeah, there is some dispute as as to whether it was in the bay or in the shack. But it was near another sleeping shack, which was regularly inhabited by Davis and Donnelly, and they actually had robbed somebody else shortly after this whole dame's murder had, had happened. They robbed some guy for like twenty bucks and beat him up and left him in the streets. And so the police, you know, in searching for any kind of evidence around that neighborhood, they found this bloody shirt around their place and, and brought them in for questioning. And since they had found out that they had committed this other crime and been robbing and beating somebody else up, they brought them in thinking, like, surely these two fools have something to do with it. And they actually ended up um, getting them booked into Walla Walla, the state penitentiary, and trying to um, and sentencing them for that that somewhat petty crime of stealing the twenty dollars and beating the man up because they were hoping that they would keep them in there long enough to get more evidence in order to pin this dame's murder on them. But they never did. But these two, you know, dumb criminals kind of ended up in Walla Walla for an extended sentence just for kind of being in the wrong place at the wrong time and. I mean, also being assholes, but that one went nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite uh, suspects in this case is is the, I mean, it's a very interesting story. So you have this guy, Charles Weatherford, and apparently he was a suspect almost immediately after the crime as some young boy on his bicycle had said, oh yeah, I ran into this guy on Elk Street slash State Street that same morning of the crime, and he said, don't go near the butcher shop. Unfortunately, the boy who came forward apparently immediately couldn't be located later, but three months after the murder, a woman came forward and said she had also talked to Weatherford on a streetcar, and he had told her many details of the murder, and that had occurred two hours before the body was actually found. So Weatherford is an interesting character, and at the time of the murder, he lived in a shack on the waterfront, and his neighbors were Davis and Donnelly, who also lived in another shack on the waterfront where all the low lives apparently squatted. So Weatherford, like I said, he had been brought in and questioned immediately after the murder, but that there was nothing on him, so they let him go. But he was arrested again in January of 1908, so this is almost three years later, and 
he had been talking about it again to someone in Sumas. But as soon as they arrested him, he clammed up and, and refused to talk. They eventually brought him to the shack, to the scene of the crime, and he became animated and told the whole story. But he insisted he wasn't there and he didn't do it. And the essential truth of this is that Charles Weatherford had some kind of mental illness. Clearly, he was not right in his mind, and they were not sure what that meant. So the Seattle Daily Times published this really crazy article about it with this insane illustration. I will post it on our blog with a drawing of Weatherford. And the, the headline was, Does this fiendish grin bespeak the murderer? In his cell lies man who tells story of gruesome crime. And he smiles, smiles, smiles. <laughs> it's very <laughs> sensational. And they describe him as ambling about like a drunken man through the long corridors of the county jail, at times sullen and morose, and refusing to heed his keepers or fellow prisoners. Again, walking about, peering through the bars of the cell with a fiendish grin upon his haggard features, indicating the conditions of the man's mind. So it goes on and on about Charles Weatherford who's also known to the police this whole time. They refer to him as Happy Hooligan. <laughs> and he has, by his own confession, said he did this crime at one point, but then he recants his story and says, no, he didn't at other points. So the police were just basically having a hard time because he was clearly mentally ill. They couldn't figure out whether that made him more likely to have done it, with their thinking being only some deranged person would commit such a crime. Or was he just delusional and kind of parroting something he had seen or heard? Since they had kind of ruled out that Dames had any sort of deadly enemy or that he was killed for his money, they were kind of starting to lean towards this. Maybe it was just some psycho. So hence they arrest Charles Weatherford and are kind of looking at him pretty intensely. There was also a story about Dames having kicked a hobo, quote unquote, out of his butcher shop prior to the murder. But that was actually later described by a lady who ran a restaurant where Dames ate lunch as being what sounds like Davis and Donnelly, as he told her about it while he was eating lunch. So, Ren, do you want to talk about the spirit lady? Yeah, I like this story. And I don't often tell it on my tours. Right. It's really offbeat. But basically what happens is in February 15, on February 15th of 1908, which is what, three years after the murder occurs. So yeah, there was um, there was another sort of offbeat suspect, a spirit who claimed to know all about the Dame's murder. So a sheriff received many mysterious letters from a woman who knew about the Dame's murder, but who says that she is a spook and can't be communicated with. In one of her letters, she says that she is controlled by supernatural powers and the sheriff cannot see her. So it says, I don't know, is where's this the quotes from, Colby? Is it is it It's the Bellingham here? Herald. It's for yeah. yeah. So for the Bellingham Herald, we have some like quotes um that describe the situation. They say the officer is willing to take his chances with spirits and would like to arrange a meeting. Sheriff Williams is now trying to locate a mysterious woman who has signed her name as spirits to a letter in which she claims she knows all about the murder of Frederick L. Dames. The woman has written half a dozen letters in the past few months. The woman sets forth many interesting details in her letters as to how the murder was committed and implicates certain persons. Ordinarily, no attention would be paid to such missives, but the woman tells such a circumstantial story and seems to know so much about it that the sheriff is inclined to follow the French theory in all 
crimes, Cherchez la femme, which is a sexist French cliche of detective pulp fiction, which basically says no matter what the problem, a woman is often the root cause. <laughs> so we're chasing spirits now because we're hoping that a woman did this. <laughs> Or is the cause like maybe 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 he was fighting with someone over a woman? I don't even know. There's they're just grasping at straws here. Clearly, <laughs> goes to you know paint the picture of how desperate we all are <laughs> to find this crazy person. They actually took out a, a like a a personal ad, like a want ad, like being like, "Hey, woman who's written letters claiming to be spirits." <laughs> Oh my gosh, come forward. <laughs> we actually want to talk to you because you actually said some things that make us think you might know more than... Maybe they got out the Ouija board. I know, what? <laughs> so many weird things in this story. I mean, psychic crime fighters are always like my favorite right? genre of fiction, so I can totally get why they would want to buy into it. Well, and apparently it's sometimes it's legit, I think. I mean, I don't know. Hey, I I will be the first one to say I think ghosts are real. So they don't show themselves no to shame. me. So I'm jealous, but it's not saying I don't believe. I just have never seen one. Yeah, no spirits <laughs> have ever written me any letters, but I sadly believe, I believe. I know. <laughs> <laughs> there was another interesting one that we I don't typically talk about on my tours, and that was a suspect in May seventh of nineteen oh eight. And apparently there was a, a dope fiend arrested at in Portland for the murder of Nathan Wolf, a pawnbroker. And there was some similarity between those crimes. Wolf, the pawnbroker, was struck down with an axe and then dragged into a rear room and had his head chopped off with the weapon. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Pretty brutal. So yeah, another suspect in the case. Yeah, that one's weird because, like, it never gets mentioned again. So I'm assuming, you know, he had an alibi or something. Still, there's, like, some kind of axe murderer fad. <laughs> just... and they do a lot of waxing, like, philosophical about, like, the nature of this crime and whether, you know, that means that it was someone, like, totally out of their mind or whether someone would do this just to, you know, get a few bucks. Or There's so much in the newspapers about, like what would drive someone to do this? And that's, that's pretty interesting. But let's meanwhile, go back to Charles Weatherford, our, our mentally ill guy who by September of the same year, they had, he's still in jail. They had arrested him, you know, and were trying to figure out if they had anything on him. And by September, they um, basically decided he was a simpleton quote unquote, and that he had nothing to do with the killing of dames and that his story was merely, quote, the delusion of a weak mind. But Weatherford, by this time, he was like, jail is now my home. This is a comfy place to be. This poor guy had been like homeless in a shack with these, you know, horrible criminals and whatnot on the waterfront. And now he has three hots in a cot and he's pretty excited about that. And he would do anything they wanted him to do if they didn't make him leave the jail. He mowed the lawn, he split the wood. And there's a quote saying, there may be a law forcing you to put a man in jail, but I never heard of a law forcing you to make him leave. Because <laughs> he put up such a fight, he did not want to leave. They were like, maybe you could go to the county poor farm, yada, yada. So um, a fellow prisoner wrote this whole poem about Happy Hooligan. 
it's kind of long. Do you guys want me to read this whole thing? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm interested in the happy who again. Okay, so uh, this poem was written by a fellow prisoner in the county jail, um, J.A. Sells, and here we go. They bid me leave my happy home. They bid me hit the trail to wander from the comforts of the dear old county jail, from the strong steel tank that shelters me from the winds that blow. They bid me hike, but you bet your life I ain't going to go. I said I was a murderer when I first came to stay, yet after this they heartlessly now bid me go away. I'll say I killed another man, two men, ten men, a score, and if that does not satisfy, I'll say a dozen more. The woman's ward is occupied, but I can sleep within. To ask me now to seek for work would be a deadly sin. The thought of going fills my eyes with bitter blinding tears. Oh, leave me yet a little while, say ten or twenty years. Oh, ask me, woo me, not to leave my dear old county jail. Who then would sweep the corridor or dump the garbage pail? I get my grub, I get my rags, tobacco too I get. Thou sweetest snap I ever struck, I cannot leave you yet. I love the dear old county jail, so safe and snug within. I even love the dear old spoon, with which my spuds I skin. I love the soup, I love the mush, the stew, and all the rest. And not one wave of trouble rolls o'er my peaceful breast. I love the sheriff, Frank I love, and Stanley I love too. I even love my work because I have not much to do. I love to sing my sad, sweet song as o'er life's sea I sail. Be it ever so humble, there's no place like county jail. I actually sort of love that. I want it to be a country song. (laughs) I could just hear it to like the tune of like a, you know, Hank Williams type song or something. (laughs) So Frank is the jailer and Stanley is the cook, they explained. I see. I see. (laughs) So even with all of these characters and all of these leads, nothing really panned out for a, a real suspect they could pursue is is that what i'm hearing yeah nothing panned out and the case went dormant but years later a string of murders in maple falls kind of reawakens this case of the butchered butcher but we were going to need a whole lot more time (laughs) to get into that one oh really well i think that means that this is going to be a two-parter and we are so excited to hear about it Right. Well, speaking of shops where things happened, crimes, <laughs> um, the only crime most of the places in town are guilty of is being too damn good. How about, how about those apples? Uh, let's move into our final, <laughs> final and favorite segment, Local Treasures. In this part of the show, we do a roundtable sharing of something we ate, drank, or otherwise consumed recently that fills us with local pride what's your pick this week annika uh this week mine is uh well i went to otherlands brewing right after i went to mount baker for the day so good right it was really good thank you for recommending it and i got the wildflower ipa and their hand cut salt and vinegar fries because i'm a fry person i love fries all the time and these are very very tasty all right well that sounds wonderful i'll 
I have a couple growlers that I need them to refill. So I will definitely be back up there soon. Um, my pick this week is another favorite brewery, the old OG. That's um, Boundary Bay and their Scotch Ale, which is a perfect pairing for these cold, cold winter months, especially if you're in a room like me where you have to keep your window open to increase ventilation. It's very, very cold. You need a little bit of dark beer to warm your spirit. Yes. All right. Well, I think that about wraps things up. I'll be back on next week to talk about part two of the Dame's story. So remember to like and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out our website at cityofthesubdued.com. And you can also support the City of Subdued podcast and support local radio by tuning in to KMRE at 102.3 FM every Thursday night at 10 p.m. to listen to Bad Town. Or you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. And a very special thank you to Marissa, Colby, and Ren from the Good Time Girls for being incredible season two co-hosts and for their incredible research. You can find them at bellinghistory.com as well as Facebook and Instagram. We also want to thank Francisco D'Andrea for our intro and outro music, The Criminals Jazz Band. And lastly, thank you to Maria and myself for doing the editing. With that, I say to you, Bellingham, so long. A little more subdued, Maria. See you next week. Mm-hmm.